It's been a real success story. I think that's driven less by CanCon rules. In fact, I don't think CanCon rules have very much to do with it at all, and more about the talent that exists in the country, the tax credit system that's available federally and provincially, uh, and uh, simply the competitiveness, sometimes the Canadian dollar. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Welcome to the show that explores the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. Joining me on the show, Michael Geist, well-known writer, podcaster, professor at University of Ottawa, and uh, really in the world of what's happening with Bill C-11. What would be your nutshell of this online streaming bill, what it is, what's the purpose, and where it's at right now? Yeah, I mean, so I think... There's what the bill started life as and where it ended up or where it is right now. Uh, it started life actually as a prior bill and continued with this bill as a means of bringing in the large streaming services, the Netflix and Disney's of the world into the Canadian broadcast system with the hope or expectation that those companies could be mandated to contribute to help foster the creation of Canadian content. Those companies already spend enormous sums of money in Canada. So there's a reasonable debate as to the necessity for this, but nevertheless, the, the this would solidify that with by bringing them into the regulatory system. But along the way, the government effectively extended the scope of that legislation to go beyond just those large streaming services to include platforms that include user content. So YouTubes and TikToks of the world. That was certainly the source of a lot of controversy when they did so the first time under a previous bill, Bill C-10. When they brought it back now as Bill C-11, they said they had fixed the problem to the extent to which there was a problem there in the view of many that uh, was creating concerns about the government reaching into that kind of content. I think the analysis from just about everybody who's looked at this fairly is that they would say that the problem remains. And so the government's mantra on this is often that platforms are in, but users are out. And to the extent to which we're talking about regulating users like broadcasters, that simply isn't something that's that's likely or going to happen. Where the concern, though, is that Leaving aside whether or not you're regulating the individual, their content can be subject to regulation. So it treats all audiovisual content as a program subject to potential regulation, which is where some of those concerns lie. The government has been told and has heard from many digital first creators that they're deeply concerned by the approach that they're taking, but have moved ahead with it in any event. We can get into what that regulation might mean, but in terms of where the bill stands now, it has passed the House of Commons, it's moved on to the Senate, and the Senate's made it clear that they want to ensure that there is an appropriate review. And so I think the expectation is we'll have hearings on this bill throughout the fall with the prospect potentially of some change or at a minimum a vote at the Senate, likely sometime in November. Great overview. Very thorough. I work in radio, so I'm familiar with what it takes for a song to be considered Canadian in the traditional sense that we can tell the CRTC that it gets a, a thumbs up from us. And that includes if the music comes from a Canadian, if the artist is a Canadian, if it was performed, like produced in Canada, and if the lyrics were Canadian, you need a minimum of two points out of four for that to count. But I'm not as familiar with, with video and would the same requirements that I listed, would that be true of of what they're vouching for on these online platforms that those would have to offer to be Canadian? 
Yeah, you you raise a whole series of issues. So you're right on the music side. The current system is something known as as Maple M A P L, and you have to That's have right. two of you have to have two of the four. When it comes to film and television, there are several different certifications. Let's say of what counts as CanCon depends on whether or not you're seeking tax credits or certification through the CRTC. There's a number of different approaches that are out there, but basically it works. Somewhat similarly in the sense that there's a checklist and then there are a series of different kinds of, of uh, positions as part of the production. And at a certain num- you have to have a certain number of points as part of this. So you have to tick enough of the boxes. Certain things are viewed as more important than others. Certain things are viewed as absolutely essential. Uh, and so that's how we end up with uh, a system of, rep- of what counts as CanCon or not. It leads to some pretty odd outcomes. So, mm-hmm. you know, this notwithstanding claims that it's all about ensuring Canadian stories. The reality is that if the original source is a Canadian story, let's say a Margaret Atwood novel, for example, uh, the fact that Atwood wrote the book doesn't actually count for anything in terms of CanCon requirements, which I think some people find is pretty strange. And so you end up with, at times, works that don't seem to have any connection to Canada at all. Uh, The example I sometimes use is Gotta Love Trump, uh, which is a documentary that has a bunch of Trump supporters. Um, and it counted as Canadian CanCon because they took the right boxes. At the same time, you can have any number of works that certainly seem Canadian. In fact, works that uh, Netflix, Amazon, Disney have been funding, things like Turning Red, the Disney film, the Amazon series uh, on the Toronto Maple Leafs or Kids in the Hall, Netflix's Quebec-based film, uh, that deals specifically called Jusqu'à Déclin, which was filmed in Quebec, or their work with Trailer Park Boys. All of these things certainly would appear, I think, to most people to be Canadian, but in fact, they are not counted as CanCon because of the way the rules break down. Now, that's in traditional film and television. If you take that and you say, all right, I want to bring that somehow to the internet, to podcasters or to uh, other digital first creators, there is no obvious way for doing so. The system isn't designed for that at all. And that's been one of the sources of concern, the idea that the government would seek to regulate this content in certain ways, promote some of this content. But when it comes to digital first creators, it's not at all clear how they would be part of that system because the system, certainly in terms of identifying what counts as CanCon, was never designed for that kind of content. From your standpoint, Michael, do you think that up until now, the way that the CRTC has regulated traditional media with imposing a certain percentage of Canadian content has helped accomplish promoting more content creation in this country? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I would say this. I think I think people within the music sector are of the view that the system around CanCon, particularly requirements to, to air a certain amount of CanCon on radio stations uh, many years ago, if we, if we go back to the early era of this, um, had a significant impact on exposing people to Canadian artists and uh, helping launch some careers. On the film and television production side, I think it's a bit of a harder case to make. I mean, certainly it's true that uh, there's, you know, there have been some beneficiaries from the CanCon system, but because it's so often the case that some of the works, some of the works that get created certainly feel Canadian yet don't count that way. And other works that don't seem to have any sort of real correlation to Canada yet, they did tick the right boxes and Lee counts as CanCon. Sometimes real, I think leads many to question whether or not the system is achieving 
its goal. Although even there, it's sometimes hard to know exactly what that goal is. You know, is the goal, and I think in some ways CanCon has several goals, is the goal to tell Canadian stories? Is it to um, ensure that there's employment in the sector? So you want more uh, economic activity? Is it about Canadians owning the intellectual property associated with these film and TV productions? I think you can make the case that the, the policy is designed to try to do all three of those kinds of things in different ways. And I'm not sure it always does it particularly well. The one last point that I would make, though, is that I do think it's fair to say that we've seen an enormous amount of success in the film and TV sector in Canada. There's just a tremendous amount of activity that is taking place here, a huge amount of investment, and particularly in recent years. So there is no economic urgency, uh, at least in terms of where things stand right now. It's been a real success story. I think that's driven less by CanCon rules. In fact, I don't think CanCon rules have very much to do with it at all, and more about the talent that exists in the country, the tax credit system that's available federally and provincially, uh, and the, simply the competitiveness, sometimes the Canadian dollar, and some of the other sorts of factors that come into play that make Canada an attractive place to engage in film and TV. And so we've seen a huge amount of success, but doesn't have a ton to do with at least the CanCon portion of our policies. And I guess the jury's still out on where exactly Hollywood North is, because there's, like you said, multiple places that the film industry has taken off north of the border. Absolutely. It's all over the place. And uh, so, and, and in some ways it, it keeps expanding to more and more places in part because the, there was so much demand in, you know, the, the, the centers of this in Vancouver and Toronto that, that we find film and TV producers beginning to look to other places in part because they want to film in Canada. They want to take advantage of the system in terms of the way it's been structured. And so look for some of those other places and some of those other possibilities. So in relation to what's being proposed here, as you said, it is slated to take effect in the fall as if all things go as planned. But from your standpoint, what would be the most compelling argument from the pushback against this bill that would prevent it? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, I, and I should just to be clear, I think the Senate will vote on this in the fall. It's possible that they will send it back to the House of Commons with mm -hmm. some changes. And then even if they do pass it, there will still be the need for the government to issue a policy direction. And then with the CRTC has said probably a couple of years worth of hearing, setting out many of the different kinds of rules and regulations. So it's still a bit of a long road until yeah. it takes full effect. In terms of what is likely to convince the Senate, I think there's a number of issues. In fact, I'm hearing that there are concerns coming really from across the spectrum. So, you know, I've been focused primarily on the user side and the implication of regulating user content. And I think that I think there will be a compelling case for the Senate that the government's insistence that users are outside the scope of the legislation is inaccurate and that the potential harms that come from their inclusion, let's say as part of rules known as discoverability rules, which would the CRTC could then use to force internet platforms to prioritize or deprioritize certain content is harmful and unnecessary and should be taken out of the legislation altogether. So I think that's certainly a possibility. Uh, I think that there may well be concerns around the trade implications of this bill. I, I've written about the fact that the U.S. government has begun to express direct concern to their Canadian counterparts about this bill. And 
raise the question as to whether or not it violates the trade agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States, which opens the door to the prospect of retaliatory tariffs that could run into the billions of dollars over the years. So there are some economic risks there. Yeah, I did read your your piece on the pushback coming from south of the border. And what's your opinion on that? Do you think that it's warranted that this would violate the USMCA? Yeah, I think there's a pretty compelling case that it does. That, that trade agreement, it's uh, an interesting sort of technical approach that they took where there can be the, the treaty agreement, like many free trade agreements, restricts the ability to discriminate against certain content. So it's a non, it was known as a non-discrimination clause. It then includes an exception for the cultural sector. So Canada has long saw a specific exemption for culture as part of its trade deal. So coming out of this, you, you start by saying, okay, some of these provisions, for example, if you had the regulator deprioritize U.S. content because it's prioritizing Canadian content, you could say, well, okay, it's treating this kind of con- certain kinds of content uh, that belongs to or comes out of one of the parties to the agreement, the United States, in a discriminatory fashion. So on its face, that's a violation of the free trade agreement. Canada could then respond, well, perhaps, but we are entitled to do so under the agreement because we, the culture, the culture provisions are an exception. But then the U.S. can in turn respond saying, okay, fine, you can rely on this, but the agreement specifically says that we are entitled to retaliate. It says that we can put in our own measures that have an equivalent commercial effect. So if the government, Canadian government says that this is going to be worth a billion dollars, I'm not sure if that number is really accurate, but if, if this is going to be worth a billion dollars a year, it would be open to the United States to establish retaliatory tariffs of an equal amount. Uh, and they can levy that in whatever way they see fit. So it's not limited to culture. They could go after the dairy industry or the steel industry or whatever industry, quite frankly, they wanted, whatever they thought might have the most amount of uh, economic punch, so to speak, is what they could rely upon. So I do think that there are some real risks there. Yes. And why would they raise a fuss about this today as opposed to the CRTC Canadian regulations that have been in place in the past for traditional broadcasters? What's different? Well, what's what's different is that this is extending into areas that have traditionally fallen outside of these kinds of rules. So, you know, the fact that they are moving into internet platforms, the, the TikToks and YouTubes and Instagrams of the world, you know, that's that that simply hasn't happened really from any other jurisdiction anywhere in the world in the way that the Canadian government is envisioning it. And so it may well be a combination of concerns about the cost and concerns about the precedent that that kind of approach establishes. Hmm. And the way that this hurts the states is there are people that are making content or just the fact that a lot of the platforms are there and they're going to have to adjust for our sake and no one else's? Yeah, it's potentially both. The trade agreements are oftentimes there by countries to represent the economic interests or the interests domestically of private interests, right? So, you know, when Canada negotiates, let's say, a certain amount of access for the steel industry or for the dairy industry or some other, whatever, fisheries industry, it's private sector companies that are the beneficiaries of those, those policies. And if trade agreements are not honored. It's those private sector companies that are hurt. And so then it's the government that kind of 
you know, picks up for them and makes the case that there's a violation and seeks to to remedy that. And just sticking on this subject of pushback, if this doesn't go through, but now we've had this big conversation that's taken center stage for so much of Canada, would this change the game and and raise uh, the possibility of of changing parameters for traditional broadcasters that we would maybe no longer have to play Canadian content as much of it? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is this is designed to be additive as opposed to subtract. Uh, there certainly have been some conventional broadcasters who have tried to use this as an opportunity to lessen the regulatory requirements they face. We may see some of that take place. or moving, you know, it's it's quite obvious. With you know, the the world is of course changing. It's changed uh, in many ways in terms of content delivery, and so we may see some of the the obligations change over time. And certainly, some conventional broadcasters have been hoping that that's the case. But at least for the moment, the government's position is not about eliminating the existing rules, but rather supplementing them. By bringing in these other kinds of these other sources or methods of distribution, and much of the debate, as we've been talking about, centers on just how broad do you do you scope that? Is it limited to large streaming services that you can make the case sure seem a lot like a conventional broadcaster, even though there clearly are some differences, or do you go even further? To any sort of content, whether it's a podcast or a TikTok or or a YouTube video, other places that have sought to regulate in this space have made uh, a sharp distinction between what they would describe as a curated service, a service that makes decisions about what is available on its platform, let's say like a Netflix, as opposed to a non-curated service like a YouTube or a TikTok, where um, they host pretty much anything and it is up to their user base to decide what appears on the platform. Hmm. Okay. You can see that and see that it would be perhaps challenging for the conventional broadcasters to make a, a solid argument to have this conceded for them too. Yeah, the, the point that I mentioned that I was kind of alluding to off the record before and something that we've experienced, that I've experienced working in a, a fringe format is something that we have come to call a, a category two problem. And I think this might be indicative of a a larger issue that others may face with the CRTC. And that is that oftentimes they like to put things in buckets. And so when I say the category two problem, if we have a song that was written by someone of faith and that's speaking to a higher power, which is what our license is in the, my day job. But if that song gets picked up by mainstream stations and it charts on the top 40, then all of a sudden it's no longer considered uh, a song that points to a higher power, even though it does, because it's now on their charts and there's more stations there, they've moved it over to that bucket. Do you see something like this playing out in your surveillance of the CRTC as a, a, a commentator on them so much? I don't see it right now from an internet perspective uh, in terms of what mm-hmm. C11 is all about. I mean, so so there may be quirks or issues that have arisen under the conventional broadcast system that I'm not sure that those will necessarily translate over on, onto the internet side. In some ways, you know, the CRTC is going to be charged with developing, should this pass, new regulations dealing with internet streaming services, potentially dealing with uh, user content and the like. I mean, these are all, at least in terms of the way the bill is structured now. Um, I suspect that they will be looking for 
rules or to develop rules that they say will create an equivalence to some of the things that they see in the conventional space, but are not necessarily identical. And just finally, Michael, in closing, you alluded to earlier that maybe some of the reasons why the film industry is taken off in Canada is because of uh, tax credits and and talent development here. What do you see as being the best way that we can keep pushing so that we're not flooded by American content, which is what I believe is behind Bill C-11 and was behind the CRTC uh, having so much Canadian content? Where could some of this, some of these ideals be channeled effectively? Yeah, I mean, I, I my view is that that there is some great stuff that's made in Canada and polls from, especially from the film and TV production world indicate that Canadians are interested in Canadian content. I suppose my view would be that part of the question becomes, you know, what incentives and what regulation do you need to help incentivize the creation and access to that content in a conventional broadcast world? where large broadcasters, the CTVs of the world, were required to include a certain amount of Canadian content, but often pushed it off into less desirable times of the day or the week, um, in part because U.S. content was viewed as much more profitable. In the digital world, if it's a Netflix world or otherwise, it's a, it's a much different medium. It might, the content mm-hmm. might look the same, but you know, Netflix lives or dies in terms of subscribers based on people finding stuff they want to watch, and they can walk away anytime. It's it's pretty different from the kind of cable packages that people are often accustomed to for conventional television. And so my view is at least in part that if it's true that Canadians want to see Canadian content, uh, and I, I have every reason to believe that that may be accurate, then companies like Netflix have all the incentive in the world to ensure that their subscribers find what they're looking for. So if that's Canadian content, they better well have some Canadian content. Otherwise, people are going to look elsewhere mm-hmm. uh, and take their subscriber dollars elsewhere. That's a very different model from a CTV, which typically puts Canadian content there as a matter of regulatory obligation, as opposed to something that mm-hmm. they believe people actually want to see. So I sometimes think that the questions we ask about, well, how can this survive? How could we see Canadian content really is more about We need to ask the question, do Canadians want this kind of content? And if they do, and I think there's reason to believe they do, then I I have more confidence that a market-based approach for some of these services will be successful in terms of creating the incentives to ensure that that kind of content is readily available. Okay. I think that's a hopeful note to end on as we ask that bigger question, what would incentivize Canadian content to begin with? Michael Geist, appreciate you taking this time and your commentary on this bill. It's been fascinating to read and listen to you from afar. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And if you'd like to read up on Bill C-11 anymore, including from the perspective of Michael Geist, you can head to michaelgeist.ca. I think one thing that Bill C-11 raises is for media to know its audience. When it comes to online, there can be this perception that you're shooting to the masses, but as I'm sure you know from any kind of marketing, you have to have a specific person in mind. That's how people latch on. Do you know your audience? Do you really genuinely know the friend or family member you're trying to reach Jesus with? And second, coming away from this conversation as a Christian, I see this as a good reminder for us to have 
the legal and business side of things sorted out so you don't get bit by something down the pipe. We are told multiple times in Proverbs to be prudent. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Jason Sutherland is considered an international authority on hospitals and funding. We address the limited vacancies and staffing problems at hospitals across Canada, especially in light of COVID. Once you have this expensive infrastructure developed, it tends to be used because you have a hospital bed there. If you have a marginal patients, it's safer to put them in the hospital bed than maybe send them home. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.